Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 30th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on this week's decision from the Colorado Public Utilities Commission to phase out the flaggers at RTD's A-line crossings. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Well, if RTD is now going to be saving some money on the flaggers now being gone, do you think quiet zones are somehow on the horizon? No, uh, because actually the I think it's the company that was supposed to have finished the A-line properly oh two years ago has been eating this one. Um, it's the loneliest job in Colorado being the flagger at the A-line. So glad they're removing them. Let's just hope everything is still working. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Seeing the flyers finally go away, but there's still being issues between quiet zones and everything else, is this showing that RTD rolled out the A-line too soon? <laughs> no, RTD never does anything too soon. <laughs> they also have the G-line with similar issues in the flaggers, and they are not yet free of them on either the G-line, which is supposed to open maybe later this year, maybe the year after, um, nor, nor on the A-line. But in, in terms of their speed, RTD was created in 1970 with a massive tax hike for everybody in the metro area. They promised in 1970 that by 1980, we would have 119 miles of fixed rail guideways. If the G-Line ever opens, which is 35 miles long, that will, by 2018, bring RTD's total fixed rail miles to 112 almost at the 119 they were supposed to have back in 1980. And if they can just open one more line before 2020, they will have met their goal within 40 years after they <laughs> promised it was going to get done. Penfield Tate, attorney at QTAC Rock, also a long-time state lawmaker. Uh, probably pretty predictable we were going to get a, a good funny answer from Mr. Copel. Uh, what do you think about this? Does this announcement put the A-line back on track? Sorry. <laughs> no, but, you know, David's preoccupation with details notwithstanding, um, I think we ought to say this is good news for RTD, and it's an agency that needed some good news. Um, you know, it's a step forward. They've still got a lot of work to do, and, and it's... <laughs> Over the years, I've been critical of RTD because I think it's an agency with the best of intentions that struggles with implementation on almost everything it does and struggles with public perception. And David's point is a valid one. They promised to have certain things done by 1980, and, you know, several years later, they're not even at that point yet. But this is a positive step forward, and let's congratulate them for that and hope they get the G-Line open uh, in a reasonable reasonably timely fashion and we can move forward and maybe start building some ridership on some of these lines. John Bowman rounds up the panel from Five Points News. John, does this buy some credibility? We don't see the A-line breaking down as often. The flaggers now be able to go home. Uh, maybe the quiet zones can happen. I don't know. But it, it, does this get some credibility back and taking away some of those headlines that we saw uh, months ago when it was just if the A-line was running today. I, I don't know that you can even ask that when we sit here on the line to nowhere. We're sitting in five points on a line to nowhere. This was the first line built. It was supposed to go all the way up to Smith Road and out to the airport. But you had a bunch of black ministers, basically, who got who were promised some money to 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 be positive about this new line through 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 five points. But they came out with 
we didn't get any money, so we're against the line going any further than 30th and Downing. So that's why it stops right there. This is the most lucrative. You talk about you talk about nothing getting done. The, the cops on that detail were making $55 an hour. The regular civilians were making 13 an hour. The Post did a story about a year ago on how much money had been spent on these flaggers. These guys made big money. It's $55 million or something, or $10 million, I'm sorry, $10 million. So the cops out there, if you look at the cops that are sitting in their cars, those are all brand new cars with new tags on the license. Everybody made money off of this. The bottom line is, I live in Park Hill. I hear, I hear the horns at night. It takes me back to you know, going somewhere as a kid reading a book. But if you live close to Smith Road, it's a nightmare. Well, in a 42-22 to 22 vote, Colorado House members approved its own version of the 2018-19 budget this week. The long bill from the House contains a variety of amendments that are not likely to make it out of the Senate Appropriations Committee, which is where the bill is headed to next. Patty, approving the budget is the biggest job our legislature has every year, but we often hear about the long bill, a lot of different details, and this time we have two pretty different versions. What version do you think is going to be the one that looks most like the final one that we see approved later this session? Uh, neither. There's <laughs> going to be plenty of fights going on. What, there were 95 amendments made in the House on Wednesday, and they wound up putting some of them in. One of them is the interesting idea of the half billion of the $28.5 billion that's going to be earmarked for transportation. The compromise was a really interesting one from the Democrats, say, let municipalities take charge of it. Maybe they can build their own light rail lines. Maybe we can move along to those 119 miles before uh, 2020. That's unlikely to survive in the Senate. Um, the, we also have the compromise on $35 million going to school security. We already have more going to education, but I think probably some of that money could certainly be used better going to education rather than a security plan that I'm guessing will be some kind of boondoggle. Um, we've got the, to go through the Senate now. That's going to be a big place to fight over a lot of these compromises. David, six House Republicans sided with the Democrats to pass this budget. Uh, now it heads over to the Senate. And the news in the Senate was it was the, the, the budget that, landed, uh, that got out of there last week was a Democratic plan that a couple Republicans cited to make it happen. Do you think the final version of the budget is going to look a bit more Democratic? Well, I, I think as, as Penfield can explain from a lot of personal knowledge, the, the long bill for funding the state government in general that eventually gets passed almost always is very, very, very similar to the long bill as created by the Joint Budget Committee. And as th that bill moves through the rest of the legislature, things get added and subtracted. Uh, but by the time it's all done, it's, it's very little difference from what the Joint Budget Committee of, of three Democrats and three Republicans, all budget experts, uh, proposes. It's unfortunate that we still have in this bill the Hollywood welfare uh, provision. Uh, that's by which the taxpayers of Colorado gave Harvey Weinstein $3 million. And, and who can think of somebody more deserving of yeah, your taxpayer wait, money than Harvey Weinstein? Harvey Weinstein? I mean, that, that, that's, that's a he, little he was, bit of a stretch. He, he's the, the producer of The Hateful Eight which we gave $5 million to in Colorado, blow, violating the, own, the film board's own regulations. Did Miramax produce the Hateful Eight or was it the Weinstein Company? 
I will. I guess I will look it up. Harvey, okay. Wein, Harvey Weinstein is on the credits of, hate, of Hateful Eight. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, $35 million in, for school security grants is a great idea because uh, there's lots of ways to spend money on education, but keeping students alive uh, during the school day is uh, about the highest possible one. And at Arapahoe High School, when there was a school resource officer, a sheriff's deputy, on the scene when a criminal came on onto the property with a gun and started attacking people, uh, one life was lost because the deputy uh, courageously, opposite of the, the cowardly guy in, in Broward County, Florida, immediately engaged and, and stopped the killer and, and saved uh, many lives. Simultaneously in the Senate, a separate bill, they passed unanimously a bill to ask the voters for approval for $3.5 billion in funding for transportation uh, improvements. That is an important sign. and. The unanimity from the Senate puts some pressure on the Democratic leadership of the House, which has essentially had the point of view that, no, transportation, that, that's an extra thing. If you want to raise your taxes, you little people, you can go and do that. But the, the state budget core is certainly not for funding things like transportation. It's for uh, Medicaid and the teachers' unions. Penn, as David alluded, you have experience with this. You're a former state lawmaker. You've seen it from all different angles. What should we take away from the headlines about the House version this week, and what should we expect as we get closer to the end of the session? Um, don't take much away from the House version of the bill. What, what will happen is the House passed its version of the bill. There were 90-some amendments offered. 33 amendments got on. But, but the context is the budget is $30 billion this year. I think all the amendments combined came in around 300, 400 million. So you're talking about tenths of a percent of the overall budget. Uh, it'll go to the Senate now, where the Senate will have its own share of amendments, kill a number of the House amendments, and it'll go into conference committee, and the conference committee is the JVC. So the JVC will get the bill in conference committee. The bill will go back to looking much like the bill the JVC initially introduced. Everybody will wring their hands, argue, fuss, and fight, and they'll pretty much pass the bill that the JBC wrote, with a few exceptions. Uh, and normally those exceptions are those matters where you have bipartisan support in both chambers for the change. And so what's going to happen now is Democrats running the House will start talking with, with Republicans running the Senate and start figuring out what items they will agree on so that when the conference committee meets, they'll have a pretty good idea of what the bill is because they'll recommend that version to both sides. The transportation amendment is interesting because, as David alluded to, we've got Senate Bill 1 coming through, but it also did something very interesting. It created a carve-out so that the chamber could run its initiated measures um, this cycle, and if those aren't successful, certain things happen. I'm not convinced that carve-out's going to remain, and the, 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 the amendment in the House that gave some of the money, transportation money, directly to local governments is pretty controversial, because usually you don't see state money go directly to local governments for transportation fixes, because counties and cities have their own ability to tax and spend, and so the state normally doesn't directly subsidize that. So you may see that, in all likelihood, roll out, because that impacts the larger transportation funding effort. John, it seems that one of the few issues that Coloradans from around the state can agree upon is the need for uh, better transportation roads. Do you think we'll see some sort of solution in this year's budget? 
Well, I mean, they, they, the, the first request is for $495 million, or million, so you would think that they would. I think the, one of the interesting aspects uh, was the, the pension uh, for Para to help bail out some of, the, uh, some of the workers that have lost money over the years because of bad investments by Para and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we had revenue growth this year, so everybody was fighting over the, these dollars. And so now that the Democrats have the edge, perhaps we won't see the same kind of thing we saw, you know, a few years back when, when we had a surplus and Owens came in and said, just because the president's given rebates, I'm going to give rebates in the state at the state level. Uh, tagging on to what Penn said about transportation going to local government, uh, money going to local governments, I, I think where it gets confused is like in Denver, we have US 40 running, you know, as Colfax, and then you have um, what is it, 285 going through the city. You also have, you know, other 40 going through the city. So the bottom line is state comes in and has to do those because those because those are federal federal roads so that's where it gets kind of confusing and maybe some of that money goes to that effort a newly released magellan strategies poll indicates democratic gubernatorial candidate Kerry kennedy is edging closer to jared polis the results show polis leading with 27 percent and kennedy trailing with 23 percent while mike johnson came in with eight percent and donna lynn trailing with five percent David, this is a poll in March. The primary ballot does not get released until the middle of June. The, the final election day is June 26th. So there's a long way between now and the finish line. What impact does this poll make? I, I think it, it, it's a big one. As you say, we've got three months to go. And so you, you look at statewide races that have happened in Colorado history or in other states. There are many, many, many where somebody who was 20 points or more down in the polls three months before the primary went on to win. So it's way too soon to start drafting the, the election day headlines. Um, and obviously Mike, uh, Mike Johnston, who's in the, uh, near, near the bottom of the, uh, the race right now, uh, he's going to have a, a million dollars spending at least by Michael Bloomberg on his behalf, so presumably that'll help some. Uh, but you've got to say the impact now, it's huge and it's great news for Kerry Kennedy. In terms of motivating her volunteers for the people who don't want Polis, uh, she's the one to coalesce around for whatever reason people have for that. And uh, not only will it help her get more volunteers, make her volunteers more enthusiastic, more hardworking, it'll also help with, with increasing campaign contributions and add to her credibility. Obviously, it's good for Polis to be the front runner, but you'd want him as the front runner to have a little more padding in the lead. Remember, there's also one-third of the votes are still undecided. So there's lots and lots uh, that can happen before the, uh, the primary. Penn, with the different headlines we've seen from this race, uh, Polis has made some, Kennedy's made some, and Johnson has made some, both with fundraising and uh, turning in signatures. Were you surprised to not see more of a three-way race in this particular poll? No, I wasn't. Uh, you know, at this stage in the campaign, the poll is really... Uh, a name ID poll. Uh, and when you consider, and when you look at the, the Democratic um, primary field, um, of the four candidates, three have run for public office before, and Donna Lynn, who's the lieutenant governor, was appointed, so she's never run for office before. So it's not surprising that the name ID of the, the three who have run for office before is higher. The big winner is undecided, where 36% of the people ended up. And frankly, that's where the prize is. That's where everybody's trying to get, because that's, that's, that's the margin you need to win. Uh, it is too soon. Uh, you know, part of what's remarkable is there's not been a lot of coverage, media coverage, about 
any of the gubernatorial campaigns, really, um, at, which is sort of a function of us being a half newspaper town uh, <laughs> as opposed to a two newspaper town, which we were for so many years. So if you're a candidate, um, obviously any good news you want to talk about, but you can't get too high nor can you get too low at this stage uh, in the process because the polling's early, it's name ID, and if you're, you're Donna Lynn, for instance, um, or Noel Ginsburg, who has since dropped out, and you weren't going through the caucus process, you didn't have a lot of name ID with the activists who were involved anyway because you're going through the petition. Um, Johnston's got an interesting decision to make now because he's not going to hit 10% threshold, and so he's going to have to bow out of the caucus assembly process formally so that his petitions can keep him on the ballot. Oh. Because if he stays in both and doesn't hit 10%, it doesn't matter what the petitions do, he's off the ballot. Yeah. So he's going to have to make an announcement pretty soon, and that's going to, I think, signal some weakness, Mike Bloomberg's million dollars in support notwithstanding. That's a great point you brought up. I did not know that. that you have to, that I've, I know there are a couple of candidates going to both sides. So I didn't realize that, that uh, particular uh, qualification. John, uh, I realize, we've been talking about the headlines that Kennedy and Polis and Johnson have made. Really, the only headline we've seen from Donna Lynn is the fact that she's not making any headlines. So <laughs> how long can she see polls like this and not any other many positive headlines that keep some sort of momentum or hope to uh, do well in the primary? I, I don't think she has any momentum now, I, so I don't know that she can keep it going necessarily. I mean, uh, David was right about uh, this is so early that, you know, th this is a time like when uh, back, back with a mayoral race with when we had uh, when we had uh, Norm Early going against uh, uh, Bigfoot, uh, Wellington Webb. I'm sorry, uh, we 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 saw that he had a 43 to 3 percent lead, and then all of a sudden one comment on DIA being DOA, all of a sudden the poll flipped like that, and Norm Early was never never remembered after that. But the 10 percent uh, the 10 percent threshold is a, is a very good idea. What's going to hurt uh, Carrie Kennedy, I think, is the fact that she was CFO for the city under. Under under Hancock, when in fact these uh, hush uh, these hush uh, this hush money was paid off to the detective that is involved in this whole. But process. they didn't have to tell the CFO about that payment, right? I'm sorry. They didn't have to tell the CFO. Uh, Wasn't there some? But legal if you're thing the, you if you're the CFO, shouldn't you know where money is going? Shouldn't you know that there's a slush fund in the in the in the mayor's office? But shouldn't if they you can, know they have a, a a pot of money that they use to make these payoffs to citizens who sue the city? But if you can legally be be gone around, it's kind of hard to say I should have known something, but I can I can be legally. I would want to be if I was if I was a CFO of a company, I'd want to know where the money is going. Sure, I can understand that point. Uh, Patty, when you see the headlines from these polls, uh, is, is is does anybody have a real big uh, reason to celebrate? I think Carrie Kennedy does, and I don't think we were the ones who wrote the story that she didn't know about the payment, but that's because there is this fund, that it, and they don't have to go through the CFO. That's not going to stick to her. It's interesting that Carrie Kennedy has done as well as she has, and that Mike Johnson, who came out first, who's had a lot of money, hasn't done very well at all. He's a really good speaker, and maybe as people start hearing him, they will, when they, there are more debates, there are more public appearances, maybe he will start catching up because with those 36 percent undecided can still make a big difference. But I think we have to remember, headlines don't matter anymore because no one's reading <laughs> daily papers, even if there are daily papers. So you've got social media. You have other ways to get the word out. And think about Bernie Sanders. Think about the surprises that come if people have a really good ground game. And I think in the next few weeks we'll see that.
I'll probably be sort of adapting the topics to be like, uh, this thing made Twitter posts this week. And that's a good point, Patty. Affordable housing issues made headlines <laughs> or Twitter posts this week, speaking of. First, a proposed facility for the homeless lost its bid to be built on federal land in Lakewood. Meanwhile, Nine News reported that 300 of the over 1,500 homes in Denver's affordable housing program are breaking some sort of covenant, and many will need to move and sell at a loss. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the show, Penn, but uh, let me know what you think about either one of these pretty big issues. Well, both are important issues, and as a community, we need to understand we are behind the eight ball in terms of affordable housing. I'm not talking about subsidized low-income housing. I'm talking about affordable housing for working families and individuals. We don't have enough of it, and if you want to see a quick cratering of our economic boom, stay behind the curve this much longer on this affordable housing issue. It's unfortunate that the Lakewood initiative lost because it was desperately needed. The Denver piece is puzzling, only because when I look at the reaction of the city, I'm glad they have the program, but for them to say buyer beware is a concern, they ought to be tracking this to make sure that title companies and sellers and buyers are all aware of these restrictive covenants in terms of pricing Otherwise, you're not going to have an affordable housing program that survives. So both of these are important stories because housing is so vital. We need to keep an eye on this. John, the blame is probably going to a variety of areas for these houses, whether it's realtors or title companies or everything in between. But does the affordable housing program in Denver suffer from a credibility problem when you see headlines like this? Well, for sure. I mean, the mayor had a five-year plan for to roll out affordable housing, um, and this sets that back tremendously. I mean, when you lose 300 houses, uh, homes out of that uh, out of that potential pod, and, and there and there's shenanigans going on with them. Somebody's got to take the blame for this. And uh, a great story by Nine News uh, by getting that out. Um, and, and, and somebody's, you know, the buyers are going to suffer. The people who are uh, uh, selling are going to suffer. This is, this is a major, major issue. And, 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 the, and the city has got some, some work to do on this one. Patty, where does this go from here? Well, the city will, I think, have to really tie down the next $15 million it wants to put into affordable housing and make sure they can track the way everything is done and go back and audit the way it's been done over the last 15 years because many of these deals are 10 years old and they just went south. The Lakewood situation is sad because under the McKinney Act, surplus federal property, there's an option for the homeless and homeless providers to bid on it. They put in a bid. It obviously needed to be worked on because it's a vast project, but the need is there. And if you want to see how well things work and how the homeless don't necessarily affect your bottom line, look at Lowry. That's the last big area where the McKinney Act made affordable and homeless housing possible. And I don't see Lowry's property values suffering. David, wrap it up for us. Affordable housing, as it is sometimes called, means specially subsidized housing for a small number of lucky people, whether that's with a direct government subsidy or indirectly through development rules that a, uh, a city imposes. That only helps a few, and as we've seen today, those few sometimes turn around, flip the place, and sell it for a, a big profit. Affordable housing in the real world is dependent on just the market being able to provide at, at prices that middle-class people or others can afford uh, the housing without having to have special government intervention. And that's a matter of zoning laws and construction codes uh, that too often impede uh, the ability of companies to build houses that people want to buy and can afford. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. 
Well, the long-running controversy over whether or not the mayor will be investigated, it was more than four weeks ago that Channel 7 had the first big report we were supposed to hear by, oh, by the time we taped last week, whether or not there would be an investigation. Now it's been, the can's been kicked down the road till next week. Let's decide one way or the other. Big surprise. David. 3,000 years ago, more than that, the Pharaoh thought he could destroy all the Jews. And today, the people who hate the Jews and want to destroy them, like Louis Farrakhan, are welcome at the highest levels of the Democratic Party. Uh, the modern-day descendants of the Hitler Youth on college campuses shout down pro-Jewish speakers and attack them in mobs. But those people ought to recognize the lessons of history, and you can never destroy the Jews. They are the chosen people, and they're on the right side of history. Penn. Laura Ingram, Fox News host for going after David Hogue, the 17-year-old who was one of the Parkland, um, Florida shooting survivors, and criticizing him on, on a tweet for his comment about not being accepted to some colleges, even though he has a 4.2 GPA and got accepted to, to Cal Poly Tech. Um, he then responded by encouraging advertisers to pull their ads, which they did. And now she's issued an apology. Shame on her for picking on a 17-year-old. <laughs> John. I was just going to say that I, I would have loved to have seen more students at the rally last weekend. Let's get to say something nice about somebody. Patty? And he didn't take her apology either. Um, it's, we just issued our annual orgy of niceness, the best of Denver, so I'm overwhelmed with niceness right now. But for the judge who saw that there were flaws to raise the bar, a.k.a. raise the money, 71 that had passed, and struck down the part about the number of petitions, uh, signatures that are needed on petitions. It's going to throw a lot of ballot measure causes up in the air over the next few months, but it's the right thing to let the citizens have more access. David. John's point is well taken. As the Washington Post story showed, on, only about 10% of the people at these rallies were under 18, and for the rest, their average, the median age was 49. But for something really good, the legislature of Utah passed a bill to protect what's called free-range parenting, which says it's okay <laughs> for parents to let children of an appropriate age walk, run, or bike to or from school, travel to commercial or recreational facilities, play outside, <laughs> and remain at home unattended. And they passed that because in other states, child welfare agencies have literally been seizing children from their home uh, and putting them in foster care for parents doing that same common sense thing. This is protective legislation that is needed el everywhere. I was probably raised free range. <laughs> Penn. I was going to say free range parenting sounds like parenting when I was growing <laughs> <Yeah>. up. So, <laughs> yeah. um, I, and I, it, John, uh, with all due respect, I, I take issue with your comment. I'm really proud of what we're seeing in young people from well, young people too. in this country I, I just wish there right had now, more. Um, because even if their numbers are not as vast in some of these rallies, the reality is is they're driving the exactly. conversation, they're driving the awareness, and I'm telling you, this is feeling like the anti-Vietnam era all <laughs> over again um, with these um, protests and what these kids are doing, staying in front of this issue. We're I'm proud of them. We're showing our age. John. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I'm going to give uh, Brother Jeff, who has his business right here in Five Points, I'm going to give Brother Jeff a shout-out because he, every every week, at two, every day, every week, we're doing a 2 o'clock live Facebook live show, um, and Tim Smith Investigation is uh, involved in that as well. We have one more say something nice from one of our producers, Adrian Eatman, who is thrilled that Cooper is on his way home. Welcome home, Cooper. That is all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Be sure to take CIO wherever you go. We're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you name it, and we are there. You can also check out our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. If you don't celebrate either, have a great weekend. Good night. <laughs>